years ago, a friend of mine was on, uh, on retreat in Burma at Upandita's monastery. And uh, in the morning, she would pass Upandita's hut, his, his hut, Upandita's hut. And she would often see Upandita, the great uh, Burmese uh, Sayadaw. And uh, Upandita would smile and say, how's the heart today? How's the heart today? So this is a good question for us to ask as we go through our days. How's the heart? How's the heart today? This is a path to the heart, and it's a path on which we practice with the heart. Uh, we make an effort wholeheartedly with the heart, with compassion and loving kindness, and this effort leads us to the heart. The qualities that we develop on this path, the parami, the concentration, the jhana, lead us to the body and to the heart. So our purpose, as we talked about last night, as Dharma students, is true happiness. And true happiness is happiness of the heart. Happiness of the heart. We find happiness in the heart and our actions that come from the heart. So the practice of concentration that we're put, putting such an effort into here, the cultivation of the qualities of jhana through the practice of breath meditation, mindfulness of breathing, enable us to maintain ourselves in the body so that we can be closer to the heart. So we make this effort to come to the body so that we can be closer to the heart. You know, the Thai Ajahn say that uh, as concentration gets stronger, our awareness converges right here at the heart, in the citta, in the heart. So the way to the heart is through the body. The way to the heart is through the body. But we have to practice wholeheartedly with compassion and loving kindness. So we could say it's wrong view to think that what we learn to do is to get to the body so that we can then get to the heart. We develop concentration and then get to the heart. We really have to practice with the heart, practice with compassion. That's why the Buddha has you start with practice generosity, to learn to be able to practice with compassion, to practice non-harming, develop precepts, develop your sila, your uh, ethical conduct, so you can learn to practice with the heart, uh, so that you can make that effort to move to into the body uh, and get closer to the heart. One of the things that uh, we often notice is that people who are very adept at concentration practice, who are like really good meditators, there can be real drawbacks in that. There can be real drawbacks in that because they may have the ability to develop strong concentration and not develop the heart. And they don't develop the heart, they just develop strong concentration. They don't learn to practice with the heart Sort of the worst case scenario of that is uh, what a lot of my friends who are yoga teachers call the spiritual bypass. 
right? You know, these spiritual adepts, these great people who are really good at concentration, gurus or whatever, really develop these concentrated states but never develop the heart. And then, of course, end up doing all these horrible things, right? Now, in my case, uh, I was very fortunate. I could say I still am fortunate in that I was like a really bad meditator. You know? I was a lousy meditator. See, in the, in the Dharma, that's to my advantage. That's to our advantage to be a bad meditator. In Zen, they talk about that. You know? uh, you know, you're, you're really good at concentration practice. Well, hopefully you can make, get somewhere in this, in this, on this path. I was a terrible meditator. I'm, I'm pretty good now, but you know, I mean, I couldn't sit for five, ten minutes. I was all over the place. I couldn't. I couldn't sit still. You know, I'd go to you know, different meditation programs, and I'd look at these guys sitting in the front row with their legs crossed, and you know, scratching the back of their ear with their toes, you know, and all this stuff. And I'm like, I, what am I doing here? You know, it's like I can't sit still for a second. My posture is awful. Bad meditator. You know, so I had to really learn to practice with the heart because I struggled so much. I struggled so much and it really forced me to be able to develop compassion for myself. You know, I developed compassion. Out of that compassion, uh, uh, I mean, in and of itself, I developed compassion for myself because it was such a struggle. And out of that compassion for myself, I developed my path. You know, I developed the path. You know, so we, it, and, and that's how we, it often begins, right? It's a struggle. It's a struggle. And we learn to develop compassion for myself. I mean, that was the story of my retreats, my early retreats. It was just such a terrible struggle. But I learned to develop compassion for myself. You know, and out of that compassion for myself, I move forward. I move forward in my practice and in my life. My teacher in those days, one of my early teachers was Christina Feldman, and she would always say, who's to say what a good, medita good meditation is? We have this idea of a good meditation. You know, it's like you know, we, we develop this deep state of concentration. Maybe a good meditation is you really struggle, you have a really hard time, you get down on yourself, and then you develop compassion for yourself. Maybe that's a good meditation. You didn't feel one breath, but you developed compassion for yourself. I drew, draw an analogy with uh, great athletes, right? Uh, you know, there's certain athletes who have tremendous skill, but really never develop the heart, never develop a passion, never develop uh, 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 an enthusiasm and uh, you know, a love for what they're doing in terms of their sport and really never develop as a great athlete. I, I played sports with guys like that who were technically so good, but just didn't have that spirit. You know, I was mediocre. You know, I was an athlete. Maybe I was a little better. I, 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 I shortchanged myself. I was, I was like an average athlete, but I had a tremendous passion for. for you know, I played, I played soccer mostly, and I had a tremendous passion and love for the sport. 
and that and that you know enabled me to succeed in ways that guys who were much more talented than me couldn't succeed and didn't. I always remember this of uh, my college coach, you know, and and, and he was very uh, very supportive of me and and. and and, and you know, always had a lot of good things to say about my, my skill. But the thing that he said to me that, that I think of to this day and that meant the most, he said, you have a love for the game. That to me meant more than anything else that he ever said to me. You know? Another analogy, something I know a little bit less about, but have certainly read about, is as a musician. You know? We have some musicians here. You know, there's musicians who are technically adept you know, piano, pianists who can play every note of every concerto, you know, but they don't play with, with the heart, you know. It's like, you know, from what I know about musicians, you know, a great musician isn't the one who plays every note right. It's the one who plays with the heart. It's the one who plays with the heart. That's a great musician. It's the same thing in the Dharma. It's the same thing in the Dharma. We practice motivated by this sense of purpose to know true happiness, and we cultivate, it's a skill, we cultivate this skillful intention. The thing of it is, is that we can cultivate an intention to practice the Dharma and cultivate the ability to practice the Dharma, to practice meditation with love, you know, with love. You know, the Buddha teaches that. So we sort of, I mean, he, he teaches us to, to, uh, to do what we need to do so that we can practice wholeheartedly. So we have to learn to practice wholeheartedly in the service of, of, of opening the heart and living from the heart. But he teaches us skills so that we can practice wholeheartedly. And we teach those skills. What I went through the first day of the retreat, see what's in the mind, set an intention. Use fabrication. Fabrication is the heart of the skill. As Tanisaro Bhikkhu says, we use the head to connect to the heart certain things that we can do in terms of using the head to connect to the heart so that we can practice the Dharma, so we can practice meditation, so we can practice being present and in the body and in the world wholeheartedly. There's a skill that the Buddha teaches us. So we practice with compassion and loving kindness. So we seek to practice with a skillful attitude, wholeheartedly, with metta, with compassion, right? The more we practice with compassion, the more our practice will develop, the more we'll be able to get to the goal, which isn't about being a good meditator, it's about being a good human being. <laughs> That's the goal, a loving, kind, generous, compassionate human being, you know? So the more we can practice with compassion, you know, we'll be able to get to where we need to get to. So we seek to practice with compassion, but really practice is just the way we live. You know, it's just the way we live. We're just practicing living. You know, we're just practicing living. We're practicing living wholeheartedly because that's what we need to do to be happy. So we seek to practice to live with loving kindness and compassion. We know happiness of the heart. But, there's always the but, right? 
but there's times when the heart is blocked. You know, the Buddha said, if we can live, you know, our happiness in this life depends on our actions. Our happiness in this life depends on our actions. If we act with love and with compassion, we'll know happiness. But the heart is often blocked. The heart is often blocked, and that prevents us from taking action from the heart, from a place of love and compassion. He understood that. And this quality that blocks the heart, called dukkha, the heart is blocked. So in order to be able to live, to meditate with love and compassion so that we can know true happiness, we have to see what's blocking the heart. That's the first noble truth. We all have dukkha that blocks the heart. You know? We have to see what's blocking the heart and understand that. So it's a good way to think about uh, what dukkha is. It's that which blocks the heart. It's that which blocks the heart. Ajahn Mahabhava, the Thai master, said, it's, it's what puts a squeeze on the heart. So the heart has this capacity to shine, to shine. You know, that's its, its, its inherent capacity to shine. You know, we can be these 13 human beings with hearts that are shining, shining. You know, but the heart is blocked to some extent, right? The heart is blocked to some extent. Sometimes that's called dukkha, uh, or there's stains on the heart or defilement on the heart. The teachings of the Buddha would suggest that all dukkha is rooted in aversion and desire in aversion and desire, in not wanting and wanting, holding on to not wanting and wanting. As the Buddha said, you know, the dukkha that we experience uh, when we're separated from what we find pleasing and joined with what we find displeasing. Aversion and desire blocks the heart and prevents us from practicing and living wholeheartedly and knowing true happiness. So in our practice, we have to begin to remove these stains from the heart. And really, you know, in many ways, it's a lot simpler than we might think that it is. We really, in large part, you know, the Buddha said we have to comprehend this dukkha, and really that we can do that if we can see it. You know? So our job is to see aversion and desire to see aversion and desire. Now, there's different levels to that, uh, but what I want to talk about tonight uh, and uh, what's germane to our practice uh, in terms of going about our days and practicing our meditation, and then, of course, our life, is the practice of just bringing a simple awareness, bringing a simple awareness to aversion and desire as we go throughout the course of our days. So a lot of this practice that we're going to talk about tonight is uh, a practice that we engage in off the cushion. 
the acronym that I like to use that many of you have heard me talk about a lot, particularly over the last couple of years, is ABC. Awareness, breath, compassion. I like that acronym and I coined it uh, uh, because it, it, it connotes simplicity. What we learn to do is bring a simple awareness to what's blocking the heart, a simple awareness to aversion and desire. So even right now, as you're listening to my Dharma talk, there may be some aversion. I don't like this talk. I've heard him talk about this stuff a million times. So just bring a simple awareness. Oh, there's aversion. And then go to your breath and have some compassion for yourself for the way your heart is blocked in this moment. Right? Or maybe there's desire. Oh, I, love, I love it when he talks about ABC. This is the greatest thing. I can't wait to hear what happens. You know, it's like maybe there's a little desire. There's a little desire. Well, that excitement and desire and, and lust for hearing this teaching is getting in the way of the heart and really understanding things in the heart. A lot of times we talk about these insight, insight more towards the end of a retreat. But really, you know, and of course the Buddha teaches this, uh, there's no concentration without insight. Now, working with the hindrances is an insight strategy that we can really apply uh, in the meditation. But as we go through our days, uh, you know, aversion and desire is going to arise, right? Right? I don't want to wait until next Wednesday to talk about aversion and desire. It's like, I wish he had talked about that back on Saturday night. You know, I could have... I could have saved myself a lot of grief if I knew what to do. One of the ways that we might want to practice awareness of aversion is seeing aversion to the practice. Seeing aversion to the practice. Not everybody experiences aversion to the practice. A lot of people do. A disliking of the practice at different times and different ways. So if there's aversion to the practice, ah, I don't want to sit. See that. Bring a simple awareness to that. Maybe you're, you know, you're in your room, getting ready to put on your mask to come down to the hall. It's like, ah, I don't want to meditate now. Oh, there's aversion. Bring a simple awareness to that. Feel it in the body for a second or two, and then go to the breath and have compassion for yourself. Cultivate compassion. See that aversion to the practice. Or maybe you're walking down the stairs to the hall and there's aversion. Or maybe you're in the dining room and there's aversion. Ah, I don't like this. I don't like this retreat. I don't like being here. Bring awareness to that. Bring awareness to that. Just that simple awareness. Again, it's very simple. Just bring awareness. Oh, there's aversion. Feel it in the body for a second. Go to the breath. I will say, and this is, you know, walking meditation is kind of a bridge piece between sitting and, and you can work with it in the sitting too, of course, uh, but, you know, and, and to some extent it overlaps with the hindrances, but walking meditation is a good bridge piece between off the cushion and the sitting, so a lot of times stuff comes up in the walking meditation, right? You know, it's like, ah, oh, I hate being here, ah, oh, I hate this walking, ah, oh, I don't like this, I'm discouraged, 
I can't do this. You know, everybody's aversion, if you tend towards aversion, it may come up in different, will come up in different ways. You know, and I, I was thinking about this and, uh, and uh, was maybe moved a little bit to, to talk about this tonight. Uh, you know, just in talking to some of the yogis and one of the yogis said, you know, I'm doing good. It's just like when I'm in my room, that's when I have the problem. You know, that's when the aversion comes up or whatever it was that was coming up for that particular yogi. You know, a lot of times it's in the dining room, you know, or it's in your room. So bring awareness, bring awareness, this simple awareness, A, B, C, see it, right? That's always the key, right? That's the first noble truth, comprehending dukkha, to see it. It's the beginning of seeing it. I mean, this is a very simple practice of uh, comprehending what's blocking the heart. Simple, but very profound, very profound. So see it, oh, there's aversion. Feel it in the body for a second or two. Label it, aversion, discouragement, despair, worry, anxiety. Pick your, pick your favorite, right? Whatever is coming up for you. Oh, there's anxiety about the sit. That's a form of aversion, right? I gotta go do the sit, I don't think I can do it. Oh, there's, that's one that I would have. For me, when I was on retreat, it was more like dread. Oh my God, another sitting, <laughs> you know? But I never knew what to do with that, you know? I never knew what to do with that. I, I think what I thought was similar, a little bit similar to what I was talking about before, you know, it's sort of like, if I do enough of these, you know, then either the dread will go away or I'll learn how to deal with it, you know? But I needed to learn how to deal with it when I was walking into that hall at IMS, but I didn't know what to do, you know? I didn't know to say, oh, there's dread, and bring awareness to that. It was more like, oh my God, there's dread. This is horrible, you know? So I had dread about the dread. You know, that's kind of how it works, right? So see it, oh, there's anxiety. Oh, there's dread. Oh, there's judgment, there's fear. Oh, there it is. It's a very simple awareness, a very simple awareness. There's anxiety, there's worry, there's dread. Maybe just touch into how it feels in the body for a second. And then the breath, can I have compassion for myself? A, B, C, very simple practice. I mean, eventually I learned to see the aversion to the practice. I learned to see it. I learned to see it in my meditation. I learned to see it outside of my meditation. I learned to see it when I was on retreat. I learned to see it whenever it arose. Uh, and my practice changed, you know? because there's no insight, there's no concentration without insight. There's no concentration without insight. So my concentration developed, my connection to the heart developed, and I was able to continue to move forward and, and develop my practice. And I've got news for you, it still arises. I mean, very rarely do I sit down to meditate, you know, and there's not like, ugh, I don't wanna do this. I don't wanna, it's, it's very rare that that's not there. A lot of times it's more subtle. The difference today is I see it, and I know what to do with it. I bring a simple awareness to it. That's the difference. Now, 
it arises because that's my karma. You know, that's my past karma. Those are the seeds that I've planted. So it arises out of past karma, and it will continue to arise to the extent, extent that I planted seeds in my life of past karma. You know, so I've probably planted seeds into the next lifetime, if you, if you believe in that. You know, that, that aversion is going to continue to arise. It's not a problem, the Buddha said, if you see it. If you don't see it, you'll just keep replaying. That's the wheel of samsara. You'll keep replaying the same song. You know, it's like listening to the same song on the radio again and again and again. So what's your karma? What's your karma? And that could be the Saturday night quiz show you know, at Powell House. What's your karma? What's your past karma? You know, everybody has their own karma. I mean, my karma is, you know, everybody's karma is very, very specific to them. You know, the way that it arises for me is very specific to me. Because, you know, the Buddha said, you know, everybody, I mean, it's so intricate, your past karma. Now, it's, it's all pretty much a, some form of aversion and desire. It's all some form of aversion and desire, but for everybody, it takes different shapes. You know, your karma, if there's aversion, might be, I don't want to do the practice, or I'm discouraged, or I have despair, or there's dread, or there's doubt, or there's judgment, or there's fear. You may not experience so much aversion to the meditation. Maybe your karma arises in terms of aversion to others. Probably a couple of people here have had aversion to others, things that they've seen others do or say, well, not say, or maybe they did hear them say something and had aversion to that. You know, or maybe there's aversion to certain conditions, your room or the food or the weather. So, what we're asked to do, and it, it help, it's helpful to know what your karma is. You know, it's very helpful to know what your karma is so that you can know what to look for so that you can see it in real time. But it doesn't really matter if you know what your karma is and you're not seeing it in real time. Your capacity to find freedom from your past karma, to find freedom from dukkha, depends on seeing it in real time as it's arising or as it's arisen. The Buddha called that seeing things according to reality. You know, and your job basically is to see it, not to analyze it. You know, all you need to really know about in terms of analyzing it is that it's your past karma. I mean, you don't even need to know that. I mean, you need to know that, but not on an intellectual level. You know, you don't, we don't analyze the experience of dukkha. Intellectually, we don't analyze it. We just look at it and see it and seek to understand it. So you're not thinking about it. Oh, I've got this past karma. You know, I, I hate meditation because when I was a kid, you know, my, you know, my mother made me meditate. You know, that one time, you know, and I and I wouldn't do it. And she hit me with a stick. And ever since then, I've hated med. You know, it's like it doesn't matter. You know. It doesn't matter. Your job is to see it in real time. I mean, that kind of analysis can be useful in therapy and other domains, but it's not the, the, what we're doing here. 
It's not the Buddha's teaching. It's not the way to liberation according to what the Buddha taught. So we're seeing it. We're seeing it in real time as it arises. So it may be aversion. It may be desire. Some people incline more to desire. We all have both. So on a retreat, you may be seeing desire for wanting concentration, wanting the meditation to go a certain way. Desire can be a little more subtle, right? It can be a little more subtle, and it's sort of cloaked in, well, I want desire for jhana, you know? That's good, you know? It's not good if it's blocking your heart off, right? So, you know, seeing that desire for wanting jhana or wanting some kind of an exceptional experience. I've got to have some kind of dramatic exceptional experience or wanting insight, wanting release. I mean, wanting release is a big one, right? I want to be released from my, my pain. Yeah. That often culminates in my desperation. I'm desperate to be released from my pain. So you just see, oh, there's desperation. Okay, there's desperation. Bring awareness to desperation. Bring awareness to desire. Maybe there's wanting to be the best yogi. Oh, there's wanting to be the best yogi, or wanting to be a good yogi. I kind of, that was another one that I had. It was like, I don't want to practice, but I want to be the best yogi. It's like, I can't move. I can't move in any sitting. I've got to be the yogi who doesn't move. I mean, there's tremendous suffering. It just completely blocks the heart off and prevents us from developing the path. <laughs> you know, so you see that. Oh, there's wanting to be the best yogi, or however you want to label it. There's that desire. I've got to go to every sitting. I've got to be in every sitting. Right? Again, that can be a little subtle, that desire, because it might be, you know, there's that guise of, well, that's, conscientious of me. I've got to go to every sitting. I've got to be there. I mean, a little bit of one of one of these that, you know, that, that comes up, uh, and a lot of people have talk, talked about it over the last couple of days, is, you know, wanting to have something good to say in the interview or worrying about what you're going to say. I mean, that's your karma. What am I going to say? I'm worried. You know, I want to make a good impression, or I, have, or I don't have anything to say. I'm going to seem like whatever. So that's good. That's, that's an opportunity to practice awareness. Bring awareness to that. I would do that for years. I would just obsess. I got to go. I got to go to the interview. I got to talk to the. Oh my God, this is going to be. What am I going to say? It was groups usually at IMS or Spirit Rock. It's like, oh, the group. What am I going to say? I got to come up with something good. I got to really show every. Oh, you know, and I would be like to the sitting and the walking before that, you know, and then finally it's like, oh, there's desire. There's that wanting to be the best yogi. The practice is very simple ABC awareness, breath, compassion. So when we bring awareness to aversion or desire, we change our relationship to it, right? We go from, I don't want to do this, I don't want to meditate, to, oh, there's awareness, right? So we're, cha- we're not changing the experience of aversion or desire, we're changing our relationship to it, and that's what we're seeking to do. And we change our relationship by being the observer. Tanisaro Bhikkhu talks about duality. 
there's a dualistic relationship, a subject-object relationship where you're observing and there's some space. And when there's some space, the quality of mind that's afflictive doesn't have the same afflictive quality. See, what we're trying to do is create space around the experience of aversion or desire. The classical metaphor, of course, is the salt crystal. If you take a big crystal of salt and you put it in a, in a, in a cup filled with water, the water is going to be very salty. If you take the salt crystal and throw it in the river, the river is not going to be affected by that. We want to be like that river. right? We want to be spacious. Awareness creates space. So the aversion, the desire, doesn't have the same effect on us. It doesn't block off the heart. It doesn't block off the heart. It's there, but it's not blocking off the heart. It's not blocking off the heart. Or it's not blocking off the heart as much. When there's enough space, there's not just space, but there's understanding. Ajahn Sumedho uh, talks about intuitive awareness. When you bring awareness, this is really... Uh, you know, at many way, in many ways at the heart of what Ajahn Chah taught in the Amravati tradition of, of the Thai forest tradition. Bring awareness to your experience. If there's space, there'll be intuitive understanding of the experience. As long as you just get out of the way and don't try to analyze it or do anything, just bring awareness to it. And in those few moments of awareness, there's understanding. So one of the things that happens when you bring awareness to, I don't want to do this, or some form of a desire, is in those few seconds when you're just observing it, you're unhooking from clinging to it. So you're beginning to get an insight into what it's like when you cling, and then what it's like when you don't cling. So when you go, oh, there's desire, there's wanting to be the best yogi, you unhook from it when you create that dualistic relationship. and. You don't have to think about this so much, but you, you don't have to think about it at all, really. Uh, you begin to start to understand, oh, this is what it's like when I'm not clinging. Hey, this is pretty good. This is a hell of a lot better than when I'm clinging. You start to understand that you have the capacity not to cling. Oh, I can not cling. Oh, I see what not clinging is. Just in that moment or two of awareness, there's, 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 there's wisdom. There's wisdom. You begin to understand your capacity to abandon clinging if you can just bring awareness to the experience. So this tr understanding transcends intellectual understanding. It comes from actual experience, a felt experience of what it's like when you're creating some space and separation from the object and aren't clinging to it for a few moments. You know in the body what that's like. Wisdom happens in the body, and then what have we been talking about? In the heart, right? In the heart. So when there's real space, you know in the heart, oh, this is what it's like when I don't cling. I don't have to cling. I don't have to cling. The Buddha's wisdom is in the heart. This is liberating wisdom. And it's right there, just in that moment or two of bringing awareness to your experience. It's right there. You may not realize it, or you may, you know, but it's right there if you can continue to practice in this way. If there's space, 
we begin to develop an understanding in looking at the object when we bring awareness to it, A and ABC, we begin to develop understanding into the not-self nature of the object. It's like, how do I know that it's not-self, right? That's what we're asked to do, is see the not-self nature of the objects that we're clinging to. How do I do that? Well, you don't do it, the heart does that. The heart already understands that. You're creating enough space so the heart you can connect to that wisdom in the heart. But you may have a sense of, as you look with, at something with awareness, it's like, this isn't who I am. The heart understands that it's not who you are. You just have to get enough space and bring awareness to it, and that understanding in the heart will be connected to, this isn't who I am. That knowing quality in the heart can consider that object of, desire or aversion and understand. So we have to develop faith and awareness, right? You know, we just want so badly to get rid of these things or we're not paying attention to them. So we have to develop faith and awareness, which means A, we bring awareness to aversion and desire, right? And we have faith also that that's all we got to do for the most part. I don't need to go in there tinkering, that there's, we answer to a higher authority, the authority of the heart. Because you know, we, you know, we don't have faith, and that's why we want to go in there and tinker with it and try to figure it out and get rid of it on our own. But the more you start to practice, I mean, the only way you're going to develop faith is begin to start to look at things this way. So we develop faith and awareness that we don't have to do anything but bring awareness to these experiences of aversion and desire. So faith and awareness really is, is faith in the heart, in the wisdom in the heart that will set us free. So A, B, C, bring awareness to these subtle experiences, maybe they're subtle or not so subtle, of aversion and desire during the course of our days. And then the breath enables us to maintain some space, right? Maintain some space. So once you bring awareness, you don't go right back into the aversion. You're able to kind of maintain some space by going to the breath, and we find some ease in the breath. So there's that quality of replacing, right? I talked about that last night, where you're replacing the I don't want to do this. You unhook from it by bringing awareness. I don't want to meditate, or I want to be the best yogi and go to every sitting and get great jhana and be the hero of this retreat and get, you know, it's like the hockey game, you know, like the first star of the retreat is, you know. It's like you could skate out onto the middle of the... <laughs> People are like, what the heck is he talking about? Uh, so, uh, so, you know, you see it, you bring awareness to it, and then you go back to the breath and you replace that with ease and, and refuge in the breath. And then... Uh, you know, if, there's, if you're able to get some, you know, maintain that space a little bit, then you can kind of look into the heart and cultivate compassion. So we cultivate compassion by acknowledging our dukkha. So sometimes just you've already looked and seen how the heart is blocked by seeing your aversion or your desire. You go to the breath and then you check the heart. You know, and you may want to just incline to compassion by... You know, the heart is blocked. The heart is blocked by this not wanting to meditate, by this wanting to be the best yogi, you know. So you acknowledge that the heart is blocked. Oh, 
heart is blocked. Can I have compassion for myself? That's the practice. Oh, there's, there's a version to the practice. I see that. The heart is blocked. Can I have compassion for myself? There's dukkha. There's dukkha. So we incline to compassion. Maybe you use a little bit of fabrication, not too much, just a little bit. Because the compassion is in the heart. We're just inclining to it. You may not need to say anything. And then there may be that felt sense of compassion. Now, of course, I've, and I've already spoken to this, dukkha is compounded, right? The dukkha you experience when you engage in some form of aversion towards the practice or another yogi or whatever it is, you know, or the desire you have to be the best meditator or attain great concentration or find release from your pain, uh, that dukkha is compounded, right? That's karmic. You know, the dukkha that you're experiencing there is the result of engaging in that way of clinging to aversion and desire over the course of your life. And what the Buddha might say is the course of many lifetimes. That's what the Buddha talks about, that uh, you know, the tears we've shed, uh, engaging in a suffering over not wanting what we have and wanting what we don't have is enough tears to fill the four oceans. So this dukkha that we see, the way the heart is blocked, is conditioned, compounded, the result of a lifetime of clinging. So I remember one of the first retreats I went uh, at an IMS, and uh, it was, we, we, we was in a group, and there were a bunch of us in a group. And I was like, how's the retreat going? And it was Michelle McDonald. I talked about her last night. She was the teacher. And I raised my hand, and I said, I'm miserable. I hate this retreat. I hate this. You know, and I just went through it, like how, how much I hated the meditation and all my aversion. And she said, maybe this is how you usually are. You know? <laughs> she said it in a way that was compassionate. So it wasn't like, screw you, you know? It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, you're right. This is how I usually am. This is how I usually am. Yeah. We all have our trip, right? We all have our, our dukkha and our suffering. So when we bring awareness to an experience of aversion or desire, part of the understanding that we begin to develop that's actually already in the heart is the understanding into the compound nature of the experience. And the more we understand the compounded nature of our suffering, of our aversion and desire, the greater compassion there is. So it's like, wow. You know, this aversion I feel to walking into the meditation hall or doing this meditation, you know, and you, you probably wouldn't articulate it this much, but, you know, you're inclining to this understanding, you know, I've been suffering like this all my life. You know, that's, when you, that's how you really develop compassion for yourself, when you understand not just that you're suffering, but the compounded nature of your suffering. The heart already understands that, right? The compounded nature of your suffering, that you've been suffering for lifetimes. It's not something that you need to overthink. Compassion is hard, right? You know, compassion is really hard for us. You know, compassion is a noble state. 
you know, I mean, I'm trying to think of the word to, to describe it. I, you know, I want to say it's, a, it's an advanced state. It's a high spiritual attainment. I mean, maybe that sounds too grandiose. But we think sometimes I should just be able to have compassion for myself. Maybe I take a few compassion courses, get a couple of books, and all of a sudden I'll be, the, you know, the paradigm of self-compassion. Self-compassion is big. You know, that's, 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 that's a... You know, uh, you know a, a state of attainment. It's a noble attainment. But it's something that we can develop. You know, it's a skill. We're talking about the skill of developing compassion, right? Of developing wisdom and compassion. This is our path. We find freedom from our suffering through wisdom and compassion. We bring a simple awareness to our experience. The breath stabilizes us with that experience, and we have compassion. And out of that wisdom and compassion, we find freedom. But compassion requires equanimity, space, being able to look at dukkha, even that simple dukkha of our aversion to the practice or wanting to be the best yogi with equanimity, with space. And then if we talk about looking more deeply and understanding the compounded nature of our suffering, that requires not only equanimity, but enough space where we understand those things in the heart. And really to develop compassion, we have to have that understanding into the compounded nature of our suffering. That's why we're developing the body and the ability to be in the body so that we can be in the heart and so that we can understand. The retreat is a good place to practice. This is why I'm talking about this tonight, right? The, the seclusion that we're developing, the intimacy that we're developing with the body, and that leads us to being able to be in the heart uh, are, you know, these are ideal conditions for experienced yogis as we all are. You know, things come up in the silence. You know, things come up. It's a process of purification, as Michelle would say, to some extent. These different emotions might come up. I mean, it may have been strong, like, well, you know, that aversion that you're feeling on this on a retreat can be strong or that desire that you're feeling can be strong because you know these karmic patterns are arising and they're not being deflected by the phone you know and your job and all these other things that deflect it so it's just arising you know as michelle would say you know we don't put that in the brochures you know, you know these things are going to arise in a, in a deflect in, in an undeflected way uh, but you know, we have skills and we have concentration and, and the ability to have refuge in the breath and the support of each other and brightness in the mind so that we can bring our awareness to these experiences of aversion and desire. You know, a lot of the groups people were talking about or alluding to, and not the groups, the individual meetings, uh, you know, just the suffering of the last two years. It's like we brought that here with us, you know? I mean, you know, that this suffering that we've all experienced over the past two years, so difficult. We've experienced loss, we've gone through great difficulty. You know? So it's not like we need to dwell on that or go trying to dig up anything. It's there. It's there, right? So bring awareness to it. If there's that experience of suffering that you're sensitive, don't, don't try to push that away. Bring awareness to it, the suffering and the pain or the uncertainty or the, or the anxiety 
that these last two years have brought us. This is why we're here, to understand our experience in a, in a safe place, in a place where we can really do that. You know, you get back home, it's like, I don't have time to worry about the suffering of the pandemic. You know, I got too much to do. I wouldn't go looking for anything. I don't think you need to do that, but you might want to, and of course it's up to you, to take some time for skillful reflection. You know, a good way to, and, you know, to, to skillfully reflect on a retreat is go for a walk. You know, the nature brightens the mind. This is why we're here, so we can go for a walk and skillfully reflect. Boy, it's been a tough two years. That's a skillful reflection. It's been a hell of a tough two years. I have compassion for myself and all beings that have gone through this difficulty. So we can reflect in nature on our suffering vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic or anything else that we want to in a skillful way, in a skillful way. Everybody here is an experienced yogi. Regardless of that, I would encourage you strongly in particular, because of what we've gone through the last couple of years, to take some time to go for walks, to experience the nature of being here. This is such an integral part of our practice. You know, I mean, you know, I do a lot of self-retreats, you know, and I'll talk to Tom Jeff oftentimes before a self-retreat, and he, you know, the first thing he always says to me is, make sure you go for walks. And Jeff, I'm doing this retreat on the Lower East Side of New York. You don't understand. Well, go, go for a walk along the river. You know? you know? Get out into nature. Very important. Very important part of this retreat. You know, it's not on the schedule. You know, I was like thinking, it's not on the schedule. So what I would suggest doing, turn the recorder off here for a second, is look at the schedule and cross off a couple of the sitting and walking, you know, meditation periods, and, and instead insert, I'm gonna go for a walk. You don't have to reflect, you can reflect if you're so moved and you feel like you're in a space to reflect, but go for a walk. Experience the nature that's here. This, this comes under the category of taking good care of ourselves, taking good care of the heart taking good care of the heart, the way a, a mother would take care of her newborn child. So my encouragement is not to push, not to push on this retreat, or any retreat really. Find a rhythm that's in tune with the heart. If the retreat is difficult, if there's things that are difficult, see any aversion that you have, see any desire you have to want to push, have compassion. Have compassion. If you mess up and you make mistakes, make it a learning experience. Everybody here is going to have imperfect meditations, pretty much every one. And this isn't about having more perfect meditations. This is learning how to meet your mistakes in a skillful way. This is where the real learning takes place. Buddha practiced for six years and realized he was on the wrong path. You know, he didn't say, ah, the heck with it. He said, what, what, what do I need to do? It was that 
trying for six years that got him to the point where he found out what he needed to do to awaken. And that's our practice. You know, when we make mistakes, the mind tends to criticize or get frustrated or feel like, go into doubt and feel like we can't do it. The heart knows what you need. You know, the heart knows what you need. So I, what I do is I just simply ask the heart, how can I make this a learning experience? What is there to learn? The heart never lets me down when I do that. It always amazes me. You know, I try to figure out what I need to do when I make a mistake or how to deal with it or I, get, I go off on a wrong track. And then I just ask, how can I make this a learning experience? I don't think about what the answer to that is. And invariably, the heart guides me in the direction that I need to go to. The heart knows how exactly how you need to meet your mistakes and how to meet the mistakes that you make. Because the heart understands what it is to be a human being. And the last time I looked, we're all human beings. We all make a lot of mistakes. It's just, that's just the nature of this experience. The heart understands what it is that you need to do in order to be a human being and make the most of this life and in turn meet the mistakes that you make. Be kind to yourself. This is, this is, this is our instruction. This is our message to you. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. I'll end with uh, just a little paraphrase of the story that many of us know about uh, the, the monk Sona at the time of the Buddha, S-O-N-A, Sona. And uh, Sona was a very skilled meditator and had a tremendous desire to want to awaken and was, was you know, I guess it was a rains retreat or was, he was practicing uh, and he was doing so much walking meditation, his feet were bleeding. His feet were bleeding, and he wasn't getting anywhere. His practice was just going down the tubes, and he was trying so hard, and his feet were bleeding. I'm going to check at everybody's feet later on to see if we have any bleeders here. Yeah? And the Buddha, of course, in his, and, and, and Sona, and the thought occurred to him, you know what? I'm going to go back to my householder life. You know, the heck with this. I'm breaking my butt, my feet are bleeding, and I'm not getting anywhere. You know? And the Buddha, of course, in his infinite wisdom, realized that this is what was happening and went to Sona and said, you're trying too hard, dude, you know? You're trying too hard. He said, you play the lute, don't you? The guitar, like a you know, stringed instrument. You know, if you turn up the strings too tight, how does that sound? Doesn't sound so good. Too soft, not so good. Find the rhythm that's gonna serve your practice, enable you to awaken. You need to find a skillful rhythm. You all know how to do that. You know, you all know how to do that. It's not like, you know, like we have some musicians here who could probably tune a guitar. You know how to tune your effort. You know how to put yourself in tune. That capacity is in the heart. So you may say, I don't know how to be kind to myself. I don't know how to find the right effort. I don't know how to meet my experience in a skillful way, but you do. You have that capacity to be in tune. That understanding is inside, the Dhamma inside in the heart. So learn to learn to hear that. You know, learn to hear that. Learn to so, you know, what do I need to do to be in tune? Just to ask that question of the heart. Learn to be in tune. The understanding is in the heart. 
It's in the body. It's in the heart. So let's just close our eyes just for a second. <clears throat> 